text is from Mark 9, 2 to 29. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up at three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matters to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do teachers of the law say that Elijah came, must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then it, is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it's written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to meet him. What are you arguing about? What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answers. He answered, It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is God's word. 
doesn't uh, happen every morning. Sometimes it doesn't happen in a whole week, to be completely honest. But this last week, I had one morning that was really, really wonderful in prayer. I have to wake up early in my house so that, you know, before the chaos of the day hits, just to spend time with God and reorient my mind and my heart. And, you know, sometimes, um, most of the time, if I'm really honest, it's, it's pretty, you know, pray, read the scripture, spend time, sometimes journaling, sometimes reflecting, silence, that sort of thing. And every so often, something happens where there's kind of breakthrough. There's revelation. There's like, I see God in his glory, and I'm just like lifted up, and it feels amazing. This last week was one of those days. I had one of those days, and, um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was beautiful. And then I heard, because every, every wall in San Francisco has to be under code to where they're so thin you can hear anything through them, I think. <laughs> I hear the kids uh, waking up upstairs. I, I hear the family waking up upstairs. And so um, I float up the stairs because I'm having such a great day. I'm just, whoosh, start elevating. No, I didn't do that. But I started just like going upstairs and telling good morning to everybody, to Ashley, my wife, and Juniper, my daughter. And now I'm still asleep, our son. Then I hear that Prince, our a small bladdered golden doodle um, has to go potty. So I start to take him out. And Junie says, I want to go with you. I want to help. So I'm like, okay, great. Grab your shoes and let's go. And so we have shoes, like little slippers right by the door for this occasion. So we slip them on and we're outside. And it's a rare warm morning in San Francisco, just adding to the beauty of this whole thing. I'm like, gosh, it doesn't get it. This is amazing. This doesn't get any, any better than this. And then just as Prince was doing his business, out of the corner of my eye, I see Junie trip on an imperceptible tiny crack in the sidewalk. I mean, have no idea how she found this crack, but she did. And she went down and she skinned her knee and she starts wailing, like screaming, like scream, yell, crying. And it's early. It's like still really early. And the sound of her yelling is reverberating off all of my neighbor's homes. And I go over to Junie and I pick her up to comfort her. And as I pick her up, her slipper falls off hits the ground, and she finds a way to yell louder, and she yells, my shoe, and she's just losing it, and I'm holding her saying, Junie, it's okay to cry, just not that loud. (laughs) Just don't cry this loud, because our neighbors will send us hate mail. We're waking everybody up in the neighborhood. Literally, as I'm saying this in her ear, I hear from the inside of the house, our seven-month-old son, Nowen, do his own version of just completely losing it. But his sounds like someone is dismembering him, like someone's ripping off toenails or something like that. And I, and all the windows are open because it's warm. And so that, and our, the Lomas kids are like in stereo, right? This inside the house, outside the house, they're both screaming. And I run inside with Junie in my arms to see what's going on. And apparently now I flipped over in his like crib wrong and got pinned backwards or something like that. And he's just wailing. So just, Ashley picks him up, and usually what Nowen does is he screams for like 30 seconds after you pick him up just to let you know, I'm still like emotionally messed up from what just happened, so I'm just going to keep yelling for just a bit here, just so you know. And so I'm holding Junie, and she's wailing, and Ashley's holding Nowen, and he's wailing. And I look at Ashley, and I just say, chaos. Our life is chaos. Pandemonium. This scene before us in Mark 9 is not unlike my morning last week. It starts off in ecstasy. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is literally glowing. I love Mark. He writes this like little thing. If you're into laundry, you get this. Like, if you're into fashion, you have to be in the laundry, by the way. So if you're into laundry, he's like, 
oh, and his clothes were so white, so whiter than anyone can bleach them. And if you are into laundry, you're like, that's pretty cool. Like, that's pretty white. Like, how do you get your laundry so white? And he just adds that little thing in there, right? He's glowing. And there's ecstasy. It's blissful. They just love it. And then they come down off the mountain into absolute, crazy, ridiculous chaos. They come in, and this boy has a demon, and the disciples who are left behind can't cast him out, and the scribes are yelling, saying, look, they has no power, and where, and the dad's wailing, like, what's going on with my son, and then the son starts manifesting on the ground. It is sheer pandemonium. It goes from beauty to pandemonium, and the question is, what do we learn? What do we learn about discipleship from this scene that goes from beauty to pandemonium? See, Mark, what he's, he's doing in his book, every single story that he tells, he's teaching us what it means to follow this Jesus on the way to the cross. And he does it through these short pericopes, these short little vignettes, these stories. And what this story is, is this story is life in miniature. This, is, this encapsulates life in miniature. It completely captures the ups and downs of life. How one moment you can feel like you're literally on top of the world and the next you're plunged into despair. And this is life. And more often than not, life feels more like coming off the mountain than living on top of the mountain. M. Scott Peck begins his very famous book, The Road Less Traveled, with these words. He says, quote, life is difficult. And you're hooked right away on the book. You're like, finally, someone who's like calling it as it is. He's a psychiatrist and he gets it. Life is difficult. And he goes on to say, this is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. Most do not fully see this truth that life is difficult. Instead, they moan or more, more or less incessantly, noisily or subtly about the enormity of their problems, their burdens, and their difficulties as if life were generally easy, as if life should be easy. Life, however, is a series of problems. See, a lot of us are either too shocked by our own problems or working so hard to ignore our problems or so badly trying to climb the mountain to get away from our problems that we don't know how to face our problems. Now, I'm not coming to you today as one who's mastered facing all of my problems, but I've made enough failures ignoring my problems to have a few things to say. But more important, I think this text has a few things to teach us about living through life's ups and downs, through life's successes and failures, through life's ecstasies and through life's problems. I like to break this teaching up into two simple parts. And because we do have um, uh, an up, we had the mid year update and we had donuts, um, I, I can only do the first part of these two parts today, and we'll do the second part next week. But part one is lessons from the mountain, and part two is lessons from the valley. So, part one today what can we learn from being in the high of life? What can we learn from being in life's difficulties? First, lessons from the mountain. Lesson one. Here's the first lesson we learned from this text. We need mountains. We need mountains. Now, it says in verse two that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them to a high mountain where they were all alone. Remember I said last week, in stories like this, mountains aren't just mountains. Now, if you're from 
the Midwest or somewhere where there's not many mountains, you're like, I get it, California. He's doing a California plug right now. Like mountains, I get it. That's not what I'm saying, right? Mountains aren't just mountains. I'm not just talking about mountains. Now, they did climb a mountain, more, most likely Mount Horeb, but this is not about just mountains. Mountains aren't just mountains. Mountains mean something. They signify something. Mountains in biblical literature are holy places, places away from the ordinary, places that are closer to heaven. And the way Jesus leads the disciples up the mountain means the mountain was a place of pilgrimage, a place of being alone with God. Jesus was drawing them away to be with him. This is a mountain where the disciples will get revelation. They're gonna get clarity and encounter with the glory of God in Christ, where the veil that cloaked Jesus' divinity becomes porous and they got a glimpse of who Jesus was in his power and his glory. And we need this. We need this. We need moments as followers of Jesus of sheer encounter with God, moments of wonder and moments of glory, moments where the finitude of our problems fade away and there is only God and we get perspective at how life is so fleeting and our problems are nothing compared to the size of our God. We need mountains, whether they're in times of prayer or worship or silence, times with God. Sometimes it's retreat, sometimes it's here, but we need these in our lives. It's no coincidence that the disciples got this revelation right after Caesarea Philippi. Remember, this is one long story. This is just doesn't, you don't pull this story out of context. This story in context is the disciples were in Caesarea Philippi with Jesus. And as they were going around in this very, in this place where there was all these shrines and places to other gods, Jesus asks, who am I? Among all of these things that people, um, what people worship, who am I? And of course they say, some say this, some say that. And Jesus asks the question that is the question in Mark, but who do you say that I am? And they get it right. Peter gets it right. He's the representative of the disciples as told by Mark. He says, you're the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus is like, yeah. And Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually goes, you're right. And um, uh, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father revealed this to you. So they get it right. He gets it right. But what, they get, what he gets wrong is what that means. They, he gets it right in title, but not in meaning, not in essence. You don't really understand what it means that I'm the Christ and what it means to follow me as the Christ. Jesus tells him he's about to go to the cross and he's gonna suffer and die, and this is his purpose. And as you know the story, Peter pulls him aside, but again, Peter's a representative of everybody. Peter pulls him aside and says, you're not gonna do that. There's no way in the world you're going to the cross. And Jesus rebukes him, in, in essence, to say, you don't, you don't have in mind the things of God, but things of man. You see glory from man's perspective, from human's perspective, but not from God's perspective. I'm gonna flip this whole script upside down. Actually, if you wanna follow me and be my disciple, you too must take up your cross. And we talked about that last week, how horrific that would have been. And they're disoriented. The point is this, they're disoriented. There is a way that they thought their life was going to go. They were following Jesus. They've seen Jesus do things like calm storms and walk on water and heal things, heal people, and even raise someone from the dead. They, they've seen Jesus do all of these miracles. They're following him. He's gonna be the Messiah. He's going to the throne. We're, well, I wanna sit on his right and his left. We'll get there in a little bit. But they don't understand. And so Jesus has to disorient them. Jesus has to disillusion them. They have an illusion of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus has to shatter that and break that apart. So they're actually like, they thought their life was going to go this one way, but then they realize it's not gonna go that way, and they're 
they're like kind of panicking. I don't know if you've ever been there where you think your life is going this way, but a piece of news, something happens, news in your company, news in your personal life, news from a doctor, news from a family member, and life takes a turn. And you don't know, you get disoriented. What is this life, what is this life about? You hear about someone and they're something against you. Someone is leaving, someone is moving closer to you, some way where life just gets a bit disoriented. And when this happens, what do you do? Well, for these disciples, this is where they were at. And what they needed in this moment was revelation. They needed this moment where, because they were so disoriented, that Jesus enters into their lives and gives them right perspective. This is what you need. Um, The late Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Um, I think about this, his story, when I think about this because of his very famous last sermon he gave before he was assassinated, where he said, I've seen the mountaintop. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. You know that that famous sermon that he gave? I've seen the mountaintop. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. And though I might not get there with you myself, that's where we're headed. But before that very famous sermon, he gave another sermon where he talked about the moment where this all shifted for him. In a sermon entitled, God is Able, Reverend King talks about when the threats of his life started to build as he's leading um, uh, social justice and he's leading um, these marches and he's meeting in these churches and he's gathering a following and they're doing these things uh, for equality and as this is happening, letters and phone calls start flooding in of threats and anger towards him, calling him names. And fear begins to build in him. And he begins to lose the once confidence he had in God. The confidence he had in God is beginning to wane. And he lost his perspective. And fear was taking over. You know that happens when fear just starts creeping in and starts taking over your entire life? This is where he was. And then he says this in his sermon. He says, quote, I was ready to give up. In the state of exhaustion, when my courage had almost gone, I determined to take my problem to God. I bowed and I prayed aloud. And he prayed this. I'm here taking my stand for what I believe is right, but now I'm afraid. That's what he's confessing to God. The people are looking to me for new leadership or for leadership. And if, I, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I have come to the point where I can't face it alone. That's his prayer. Then he says, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never before experienced him. It seemed as though I heard an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth. God will be at your side forever. Then he says, I almost, almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me an inner calm. Three nights later, our home was bombed. Strangely enough, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. My experience with God had given me new strength and trust. I knew now that God is able to give us the interior resources to face the storms of life. See, what MLK had was this moment with God where it transcended all of his problems. And you think you have problems. All of his problems all of his fears, all of a sudden were, were, 
were, re, were reframed around the glory of God, the perfection of God, the strength of God, the beauty of God. And it, he had this inner peace where he's like, I can face any storm. These are the moments we need. Moments with God in clarity and in fortitude. This is what the disciples needed. Now, what's interesting is that as they were on top of the mountain, Moses and Elijah showed up. Now, if you know the Old Testament, they have been gone dead for a very long time. So this is kind of amazing. And I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. I don't know if they had like, hello, my name is, like name tags on them or something. But they somehow recognized and they're like, Moses, Elijah, oh my gosh. And they're talking with Jesus and they're all just like rapping, just on the top of the mountain together. And Peter, James, and John are sitting there just like mouth wide open going, I can't believe, there's like, I don't know what they're like, I can't believe this happened. Oh my gosh, it's kind of crazy. Like this sort of thing. And they're just losing their minds as they're having this conversation. Now, why is Moses and Elijah there? Now, a lot of commentators write different things, and they're all really good things. Some people believe that Moses and Elijah were there with Jesus because Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets, and the prophets and the law, the law and the prophets were giving witness of Jesus being the culmination of the law and the prophets. That's one take, and I think that's really beautiful. The other, other people say, well, it's the Old Testament. M- Moses and Elijah represent the Old Testament and the, this former thing passing away. That's why it says, uh, suddenly only Jesus remained and those two, two prophets were gone, only Jesus remained. It's like the passing of the torch to Jesus who is the culmination or the fulfillment of what the Old Testament speaks of. That's another really good take. My personal favorite, though, is that these prophets represent those who like the disciples at this moment, beheld the glory of God on a mountain at a crucial period of discouragement in their life's mission. Both Elijah and Moses went to a mountain, experienced God at moments of almost so much discouragement in their ministry that they almost quit. Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 19, thinks he's all alone, he just had this really crazy encounter with the prophets of Baal. He showed that God was, God was indeed more powerful than the gods of that age and that God was real and could be worshiped. As that happened, he got threats over his life and he got so afraid, and, which is ironic because he got so afraid after he was able to stand up in front of just hundreds of prophets. He got so afraid that he fled to a mountain to basically get depressed and wanted, basically wanted to die. And God called him higher up into the mountain and put him in the cleft of the rock and asked him, what's, what's, what's wrong? And Elijah said, I'm the only prophet left. There's no one else. I'm it. And everyone has turned from you. I'm alone. I feel alone. I feel depressed. And God hit him in the rock and, and his glory passed by and there was um, an earthquake and a, and a storm. You guys know the story. And God wasn't in any of those things. And then there was a still, small voice. And that was the voice of God. And then God told him right after that, I have many more that you don't know of. Actually, this is what I want you to do. I want you to come off this mountain. I want you to anoint this person. I want you to anoint that person to carry on the work of my ministry. And Elijah got strength from the mountain and perspective from God to to walk down off the mountain. So he met God on this mountain in the moment of depression. Moses, same way. Moses um, was tired of leading God's people. He had led God's people and they'd been so disobedient that he complained to God about how to lead them. And then finally God um, had a cloud go over the mountain, which meant God wanted to meet. Cloud represented God. We'll see a cloud here in a second on top of this mountain transfiguration. And he goes there to meet with God. And he has such an encounter with God that he asked God for more. 
He said, God, show me your glory. He wanted, to see, he wanted God so much. And he even said, if you don't go with us, we're not going. Two of these followers of God were discouraged in their ministry, discouraged in their life, got clarity and perspective on the mountain, just like the disciples. They were called to something that was way beyond them. They were called to, some, to follow Jesus in ways they didn't understand, and they needed clarity, and they needed perspective. So Jesus took them on the mount, on the mountain, to get clarity. I don't know where you're at in your life. Um, I'll just say this. It's hard to live into the way of Jesus in San Francisco. It's so hard that sometimes it feels like um, a tour in the military where you can do like two years and you have to like bail. Because it's really, really hard. And I would say in order to make it here, you need a mountain. You need a mountain to go to to get perspective and come down from. Now your question might be how? How in the world do you, do you have, where do you, where's this mountain? I wanna find this, how do you do it? Second lesson we learned from this mountain is lesson two is we can't make mountains happen. Let me explain this. What I mean by this is that you can't just make an encounter with God happen. Notice that Jesus leads them up on the mountain. They don't tell Jesus to follow them to the mountain. Jesus calls them up to the mountain. Now, that might not be encouraging. We would, we would rather put moments like this on the calendar, like a good chiropractor appointment or a good therapy session. Like, can I schedule this in God? How do we do this on Tuesday? I'll have an encounter with you, set my perspective right, all this other stuff, I need a little bit of adjustment, and then I go on with my day. Can I just schedule it? But God typically doesn't work that way. God's a bit more mysterious than that. Now, how do we get to these times? Well, how, how in the world do you do them? There's something that a strong tree and a good surfer and these disciples have in common, and that is being in the right position or being in the right place. A tree will grow strong if it's planted in the right place, by a stream, by other trees, a place where there's good sunlight. A surfer, if you know anything about surfing, has a lot of fun if they know the right place to get into the lineup. They know where to paddle out and where to wait for a wave. When I was learning to surf in Carpinteria, and I've since given it up because it's way too cold here, just to be honest, but when it was the good land of Santa Barbara, <laughs> I would, uh, I'd go out surfing quite often, and I would surf at this very famous surf spot called Rincon. Now, I had no idea what I was doing then, but I would, you know, paddle out to look like I knew what I was doing. And what I, I noticed is that the good surfers knew exactly where to paddle out and how to, when to wait for a wave and know what to get in the right position to catch the wave. And I would always be in the bad position where the wave would either break on me or another surfer would ride over me or something like that. And a good surfer knows exactly where to be. Now, a surfer can't make the wave come. They don't go out there and like, here come wave. They, don't, they can't do that. They don't, it's not a thing. They just wait. And they wait and they get in the right place. These disciples committed their lives to following Jesus. So when the time was right, Jesus said, come up to the mountain with me. Getting in the right place at the right time is an art and a discipline when following the way of Jesus. Like a wave, you can't make it happen, but you can get yourself ready. You can build in your life habit of, and ritual of following Jesus and meeting with Jesus and meeting with God, placing yourselves 
where these moments can happen. These might be early mornings for you. You can wake up 15 minutes early. It's possible. Is it hard? Yeah, it's hard, but it's possible. So, So many excuses, but it's just my life. Like, yeah, everyone's life is life. Everyone's life is hard. You can wake up 15 minutes early to be with God. You can. That's a thing. Or you can stay up 15 minutes later to be with God. You can actually do both of them if you really try. Like, it's not that. You've got to get yourself in the right place. Also, church. You ever notice, okay, church architecture, typically in ancient church architecture, even modern, good modern church architecture, churches are built up higher than street level. So you have to climb stairs, steps to get to them. Why? Because you're going to a high place. You're, this is, if you've ever been to Israel in the Temple Mount, you have to go up to it. You have to ascend the hill of God. Who can ascend the hill of God? This is like all throughout the scriptures. You, you, climb, you ascend to God. You're like, I'm going there. There's something, I want you to think about that. Every time you're climbing, you're, you're, you're taking the steps up to the sanctuary here that we're going to meet with God. Now, church, some days church is just church, right? It's like, nah, nah, that's good. Yeah, it's good. It's fine. How was church? It's fine. It was fine. It was church. Like, God was there. I was worshiped. I'm like, yeah, it was good. Communion was good that day. I was like, I have, the wine was especially good that, for some reason that day. It was good. It was fine. It was good. I'll just be honest. That's, that is a lot of churches like that. You just keep showing up. You learn something. You worship God. God's worthy of it. You do it. Is it like, super moving and emotional, like, oh my gosh, that was it. The revelation, not every single week at all. Reset your expectations. But you show up, you show up, and then there's a moment of just complete, you position yourself right, usually second service, and (laughs) that's a joke, that's a joke. And it happens. It doesn't happen every morning, but it happens. It doesn't happen every evening, but it happens. You get yourself in the right place, and there, it happens. You can't make this happen, but you can do something in showing up. And you continue to show up, and breakthrough happens. Lesson two, you can't make it happen. Lesson three, we can't live on the mountain. We can visit the mountain, we can't live on the mountain. In verse five, Peter says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three houses. Three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then in parentheses, if you notice, it says, he did not know what to say. He was so frightened. <laughs> Peter's the kind of person that when he doesn't know what to say, he just says something. It's like Michael Scott, you're just, I'm gonna say something. It's probably gonna come out and be really wrong and quite offensive and a little bit like off color. Like Peter was like that. Peter, but he, he kind of offended God. Like the, God the Father shows up and says, Peter, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. Which means, shut up, right? Which is like, stop. Stop. Just stop. But Peter wants to build shelter. This word in Greek is tabernacle. Peter's like, let's just build a house. Who wants a house? Let's just build houses. Let's just all chip in. Like, we'll just start building houses right here and let's build booths. Let's build tabernacles. Now, if you're, these three gentlemen, Peter, James, and John, knew their Old Testament really well or they would just say their, their Bible. Uh, they knew it really well. And because they knew it really well, they knew that um, if they saw the glory of God, where does the glory of God go? In a temple, in a tabernacle. That's where God's glory is, partly to shield everyone else from God's glory because it's so great, partly to house it because God said he'd dwell with his people. 
So Peter's like, hey, let's, I, know, I know where God's glory goes. It goes in tabernacles. Let's build three tabernacles, one for each of you. And guess what? By the way, you get to remember the context. The cross is, the, is like casting a shadow on all the second half of Mark. So Jesus said, I'm going to a cross, and if you want to follow me, you go to a cross. And then they go up to a mountain, and Peter is almost like, why do we need a cross? We don't have to go. We can just live here. Let's just all live here. This is so good. We could hang out with Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and I have so many questions for them, and we could just stay here on the mountain and live here. And God says, and this is always the temptation, by the way, and the Father says no. See, we try to over-spiritualize life and say that we want to live on the, in the mountaintop experience. We want to dwell on the mountain with God forever, live in his mediated presence forever. But this is not what God wants. God loves meeting us on the mountains. He loves, he loves being with us on high places in these moments of like, of like clarity and moments of revelation, moments of encouragement. He loves that, but he doesn't allow us to live there because there's work to be done. There's a mission to complete so Moses was on the mountain with God. He's like, there's work to be done. Come off this mountain and lead my people. Elijah's on the mountain and God says, now I need you. There's mission to be done. Call Elisha next and call this person. Anoint this person as king and go into And I have so many other prophecies you don't even know of. I need you to go and complete the mission. Jesus was on this mountain and so was Peter, James, and John. And Jesus had a cross to carry and the disciples had a world to tell. It's not done yet. Get off the mountain. See, my secret place, my, my mountain, is Big Sur, the most holy place in California, maybe the world. <laughs> I've never been everywhere in the world. I've been most places in California. It's definitely the most holy place in California. I love going there alone. I love going there with my family. And being with God in Big Sur, is, there's nothing like that that compares, that compa- like, compares to any place I've been in my own life with God. And sometimes when I'm there, I'm tempted to live there. Like quite literally, I think, how can I build a house here? God, let's just build a house here. Like there's wood. I can just like start cutting things down and making a house. How do I buy a house? How do I buy land? I've literally Googled how do I buy land there? How do I buy a house there? What if I just lived there and shot down to San Francisco on Sunday mornings and went back there? I mean, I'd be so like godly. Like our people would love it. I'd just be like, oh, I just show up just glowing. But that's not my call. That's not real life. My mission is to the real chaos of San Francisco. I'm tempted to build a life in Big Sur or a life with God in Big Sur, but the call is to the disparity and the angst of the city. We, if you live in San Francisco, you're called to that disparity and angst. Yeah, we wanna live on a mountain, but that's not our call. We all need mountains, but we can't live there. In verse seven, it says, just then a cloud appeared, which, if we remember the Old Testament, means God's coming. And a voice from the cloud speaks, this is my son, whom I love, which is literally the exact same words that you get at the very beginning of Mark, which Mark is telling you, this is part two. Part one was the baptism of Jesus when God said to Jesus, you're my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Second part, this is my son, whom I love, listen to him. All this is meant to cause in the disciples courage and faith. Remember, right before this, they're so dismayed by Jesus' call to take up their own cross. They don't know how this could be. They don't know if they have the courage to follow Jesus toward the cross. The Father's voice is one of encouragement, 
and of confirmation. Confirmation in that what Jesus said about the cross is correct. Listen to him. I confirm and affirm that what Jesus said is right and true. He's going to the cross, and you too will have to take up your own cross. That's right. Listen to him. But also encouragement. Because at this moment, when they hear the voice, the clear voice of God, they know that this is God's plan. And this plan of God supersedes all the other plans, makes all the other plans that they had look so small. Even if they don't understand it, they can follow Jesus this way. Actually, the tune kind of changes where Peter says, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll even go. I'll, I'll, I got your back. Of course, he doesn't have the courage and strength to do that. But something happens in his heart where he sees the clarity of what Jesus called to. Jesus is who he says he is, even if they don't understand what that means. See, moments in God's presence where the hard things don't feel so hard and you're lifted higher to see a greater purpose is what God does in moments like this. See, being in this building for a year, we're celebrating a year today in this, in this building, has me a bit nostalgic to where this morning I was reading my prayer journal of when God called us to plant this church, like 2008, 2009, and I journaled through like all of my kind of emotional up and downs during that time, and I was, I was going back and reading it, and many of my prayers that I prayed in this journal were straight up overwhelmed. I was just overwhelmed by what God had called us to. I didn't have a category for what God was calling me into. I didn't think I would make it. I did not actually even think I would live. There's one I was like, I am not gonna live through this. Now, if you know how dramatic I get, this is not shocking to you at all. I'm like, I'm gonna die there. Like, I've felt that many times here. But every single time, I would position myself to hear from God. And every single time, somehow, there would be perspective. It happened where I'd get clarity. God would meet me, and the next entry would be something about a report on how God revealed himself through a person or through a scripture or through a time in prayer. And God encouraged me to keep, even though I didn't know the immensity of what God was calling us to, even though I didn't know the cost it would actually take to do that, God just gave us just enough to go, I'm with you, be of, be of good courage. I need to remember that. I need to remind you of that. Life is difficult. What God calls us into as his followers makes life even more difficult. We'll learn that next week. But it's worth it. There's no better way to use your life than in service to God. But that perspective only happens on a mountain. So find your mountain. Find your place with God. Find your place where you position yourself to hear God, to make yourself, your own heart exposed to God. All of your fears and all of your worries and all of your angst are laid bare before God. See, I wish that I can do a, um, we might do this next week, but a topography map of the book of Mark where you see Mark starting Galilee, kind of at sea level, and, um, and it goes up, and as his, his ministry, Caesarea Philippi is kind of a high place where a lot of people worshiped other gods. And then they go to Caesarea Philippi, and then they go on this Mount of Transfiguration, which is Mount Horeb. And they go high on this mountain, and then they have to come down in the valley, 
which we'll get to next week, and they're making their way to the cross, to Jerusalem. And as they're making their way to Jerusalem, there is another blip on the map. There's another mountain that Jesus has to ascend, and this is the Golgotha, they call it, the, the, the place of the school. It's a little hill right outside Jerusalem. And Jesus would go there, and on this mountain is where he would be crucified. On this mountain is where heaven and earth would ultimately meet, and where we would truly see what God is like. What is God like? God is the one who's given his, himself. God is in Christ, reconciled in the world to himself. God is in Christ, showing us what he's like. He's like someone who would give his own life, give their own life for us to make a way that we would have relationship with him to make things right between us, be the sin that, that disobedience creates, like this thing that, that sin creates, that hangs there, that someone has to do something about, God does himself by going to the cross. And so this mountain, Jesus himself would climb, and he would quite, climb it quite alone to, to show what God is really like. And this is... At this moment, we need to see the cross. We need to see what God is like in clarity. We need to meditate on the cross and fix our eyes on Jesus on the cross. And as we do, we get this clear picture of what God's really like. This really, the clear picture of what life following Jesus is really like. And in that, we get strength to come off of the, our own mountains, strength to love, strength to serve, strength to give our lives as a service unto others, Strength to give ourselves in service to God. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that for some in here, I, I, I can't imagine it'd be for everybody in here, but for some in here, this, this moment, this, this morning would be a moment of, of revelation, of encounter with you, God. That as we look upon you, we would see what you're like. And that in that moment, we would be given strength, perspective, and clarity, God, that right now, Holy Spirit, you would come. As we are facing life's pressures, life's uncertainties, moments of both faith and unbelief, we pray for a perspective that lifts us higher and gives us perspective of your glory and your goodness. And that there be breakthrough that happens. Moments of, of, of insane, perfect clarity. Our circumstances might not change when we descend the steps of this church, but our vision would change of who you are and what we're called to. I pray you do that in subtle and not so subtle ways now. In Jesus' name.